Well, go ahead and open your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 through 21, if you haven't done that already. 1 Peter 1, 17 through 21. And I will ask you, as always, if you're able to stand, we'll have the words on the screen, and we're just going to stand out of a reverence for him and attentiveness to his voice as he speaks with authority to his people. Beginning of verse 17, hear the word of the Lord. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you now as always for your word, and we ask that you would make it come alive to us today, knowing that you know everything on every heart and every situation and every life and what we need to hear from you today. And so we open our ears and hearts to receive. Would you speak to us, Lord? By your spirit, through your word and through your servant, to your people and for your glory. God, I ask you to move me out of the way. Use my voice as your vessel today in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. Well, this passage, number one, I would say, even though it's just a few verses, there's kind of a lot here. It's not especially unclear, per se. He says what he says pretty directly, and yet he says enough different things. It may be uh, a little bit of a challenge to put together, not unlike maybe some of my sermons where you go, you know, you've said a lot there, what's your point? And so I, I want to I wanna try to make that clear about Peter's message here this morning because he uh, adds a third imperative to the two that we saw last week. You, if you were here last week, you remember he told us because of all these good things he has done and the assurance we have uh, of, of our hope and our inheritance and so on, set your hope fully in the future grace that awaits us at the revelation of Christ. Such a hope fully in future grace. The second one was be holy in all of your conduct. Do you remember that? Be, go all in uh, with all of your hope, holy in all of your conduct. And here we get the third, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And the basic line of reasoning that he lays out right there in verse 17 is, if you call him father, then you should live with fear. That's actually uh, kind of the, the real brass tacks of the, of the premise he lays down. If you call him father who judges impartially, each one according to his deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. If you call him father then you should live with fear. Now, the notion of fear of the Father probably makes 
many of us, maybe most of us, a little bit uncomfortable. When we think about these three imperatives, I can get on board with hope. I can accept be holy in most of my conduct, right? But this one is a little bit harder for us to digest, not only because we think of fear uh, as really a negative thing in general, but we probably think of the fatherly nature of God as being the more a relational and affectionate and accepting uh, sort of part of his nature, right? In other words, we, we, it, to the extent that we can buy into the idea of fear of God, we think of it as God as king and Lord and so forth. Um, and when we, when we think of him as father, we, we think of the, again, sort of embrace and acceptance and affection and so forth. We might have a really hard time talking about fear and father in the same breath. But also, and maybe particularly, on a human level, fear of a parent can be so unhealthy in some cases... Uh, probably unhealthy at least a little bit in all cases, right? It's certainly imperfect. But it can be so unhealthy in some cases or, or at least so inconsistent depending on a variety of factors uh, with, the, with the parents and the children and their relationship with each other and all those kinds of things that, that it becomes, when, when we think of fear and father together, it, we, we have a really difficult time taking the analogy that we have from our own experience and applying that in a healthy way to God. And so all I'm doing is setting the table here by saying there's some challenges in even our readiness to process this. And yet, it's not unclear what he's saying here. And it's not unclear that it's stated as an imperative. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. All the time, for as long as you're here on earth, as God's child, conduct yourselves with fear. But there are, again, in our own experience, a variety of family dynamics that affect even the way we think about a healthy fear of parents. I heard a comedian recently was talking about the special challenges of being a firstborn child. Uh, you know, especially in a big family, Maybe especially in a big conservative Christian family, which in this particular case was, was his experience growing up. But the, the expectations are different for the firstborn a lot of times than they are for uh, younger kids. The relationship with the parents is different, and the relationship with the, with the other kids, again, especially depending on how far apart um, those ages are spread out. Some of you know what I'm talking about already because you were a firstborn or maybe some of you were the last born, and you know it from that perspective too. But he was talking about just the special challenges um, in that regard, and he said he was a firstborn. And he said that he had a sister who was 10 years younger than, than he is, and apparently she was raised by her best friends <laughs> because she had no fear of them. And, uh, you know... She said, he said, she'll be rude to them, you know, right to their face. And he'll say, you can't talk to them like that. He said, when she turned 18, she got a tattoo. And he told her, well, you're going to get in pretty big trouble when they find out about that. She said, I'm 18. I can do whatever I want. 
He said, well, I'm 28, and I'm still hiding wine from him. So no, I don't think you can. It's funny because it's true, right? Those are two very different perspectives on fear of the Father. And it's actually, it's, it's a little humorous, but it's also maybe a little bit helpful in depicting what our struggle is as children of God to construct in our own thinking what it means to have a healthy fear of God. Because there might on one hand be um, a a sort of fear that creates distance in the relationship, right? That's uh, afraid of of him and um, doesn't feel loved, feels a whole lot of respect but not really love and is, is, uh, is terrified in a sense. And there might be on the other end of the continuum those who feel like, I can do whatever I want. Even those who are Christians, who think that the nature of God's grace means indifference toward anything we do. He's forgiven it all, past, present, or future, and so it doesn't matter what I, would, what I do. I would suggest to you neither one of those uh, is an accurate perspective here. But many, many, many of us have our own version of that comedian's story, right? Either as children or as parents. We, we relate to it. We know that parents don't always treat their children the same way. We know they don't always treat them fairly, Because parents are not perfect or all-knowing, and they don't always judge impartially. But God is. God is perfect and all-knowing. He is completely just. There is no darkness in Him. No shadow of turning. He does not change. There's never a day where He's in a bad mood. Or just doesn't feel up to talking to you or listening to you. There's never a time where he renders justice unfairly. Or that he is inconsistent. And so we're told, if he is our father, we ought to conduct ourselves with fear. And I want to try to draw out of this passage, this short passage, which may seem a little bit tangled, I want to draw out two reasons that he gives for that. And you, depending on how you look at it, you might be able to outline more than that, but I just want to point out these two. That number one, it says that he's an impartial judge. We should, we should conduct ourselves with fear because he is an impartial judge who judges each one according to their deeds. Now, again, here's something we, as evangelical Christians, might have a little bit of a a difficult time even processing because we think, "Uh, no, I'm not going to be judged according to my deeds. Well, uh, let's unpack this. Let's unpack this. Because certainly we want to underscore the fact that he's impartial. There are no favorites with God. Uh, there's, nobody's above the law. No one can pay a bribe to get out of their punishment. He is 
He, is, he sees it with absolute clarity. Nobody on the last day will experience the judgment of God and, and think that he's been unfair. Like That'll be one of the revelations that'll be clear. He is perfectly just. He sees with absolute clarity um, exactly what's going on. He's impartial in that way. But it is true at the same time that the one who has faith in Christ will have his sins, his evil deeds, if you were, placed under the judgment of the cross of Christ. Your sins will be paid for. Your sins will be judged. It's only a question of whether you'll receive the judgment for it personally or if Christ has received it for you. Do you understand? That's, uh, again, sort of the, the grand story that the Bible tells us is that he who knew no sin, Jesus, became sin for us. That on the cross, he satisfied the wrath of God. That although he, Christ was just himself, sinless, that, that in the death of Christ, God demonstrated himself to be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. He poured out punishment upon sin, but he justifies those who have faith in Christ. So our, our deeds will be paid for, but our sinful deeds will be paid for by the sacrifice of Christ if we have faith in him. Now that's, that's the story the Bible tells. We're, we're not saved by good deeds. We're saved by faith. But we are saved for good deeds. And this is the other part of it that does matter. You may remember in Ephesians chapter 2, uh, really the first 10 verses there where he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins and, and, and God made you alive together with Christ, raised you up with him, seated, with, seated, with you, seated you with him in the heavenly places in Christ so that in the ages to come, he might show the riches of his grace in his kindness toward you. And let me capture this real quick because there's a couple of uh, points at which this is helpful to us in understanding Peter's message here. God saved you and me in a way that brings him glory. There is a great uh, testimony that will be made in that last day where, where God will be on display as the victor. And one of the ways he will, he will appear most glorious is because he saved a wretch like me and like you. That God, um, in his own glory and, the, and, and sort of the radiance of heaven, surrounded by all the glories of heaven itself, surrounded by angels and cherubim and seraphim and, and, and all that that involves, will also be surrounded by saints. 
those who were sinners, but by grace have been made saints. And he will get the glory for that. Do you get that picture? Now that's important for a couple of reasons because he goes on in that same passage in Ephesians 2 um, to say, by grace you're saved through faith, that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For you are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which he prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. I don't know if you remember any of that. If you don't, you can turn back and, uh, and look at it now or later. All of that work of His grace, when we were raised from death to life, seated with Him in the heavenly places, all by grace, we were saved for good works, which He prepared beforehand that we should walk in them back to my point here we're not saved by good deeds but we are saved for good deeds our deeds do matter and if you're a professing christian whose life whose mouth professes it but your life in no way does you have reason to fear a holy god and you've known of people like that who would claim to be Christian and there's nothing about their life that indicates that they are. You look at the way they treat other people, the way they talk about other people, the way they conduct their business in dishonest and unethical ways, everything about their life and testimony would suggest otherwise. And in many cases, their life and testimony probably tells the truth and their profession does not. Our deeds do matter. He created a people for good works that, that in part by them, not only our worship of the living God, but, but our good deeds, our love for our neighbor, and so, so on, that all of that would testify to the world of his greatness and his grace. And so if our lives do not bear the fruit of good works, we should fear his judgment because we ought to fear whether or not we actually belong to him. If you live constantly in judgment of other people, for example, and are never brokenhearted over your own sin, you ought to fear the righteousness of God. That sounds a whole lot more like a Pharisee than it does like Jesus, who was so opposed by the Pharisees. If you willingly and habitually sin and it just doesn't bother you, you're never convicted about your own sin, you have reason to fear. He is an impartial judge to each one according to their deeds. And again, the good news that I don't want to be, I don't want to be lost here, I don't want to draw, raise any question or cause any doubt in anybody's mind, that through faith in Christ, our sins are forgiven by His grace, by what He has done for us, not by what we do.
And that really sort of leads us to the point number two. The reason we should be uh, kind of stirred with fear, he paid the highest price for your ransom. Again, this is one of these things that strikes a little bit of discord or dissonance in our head. This doesn't seem like reason to fear. It seems like reason to love or rejoice and so forth. And that's, be, that, that's partly because we've got a, a, a sort of a narrow definition of fear in our own mind and not that uh, sort of reverence that has a deep adoration attached to it. That he's so worthy of praise and so worthy of our adoration that at the same time he's worthy of our awe and reverence and fear. Just struck with the awareness that he is totally unlike any other. But he paid the highest price for your ransom. And that's kind of what is unpacked in the, in the following verses. And it occurred to me as I was thinking about this, and some of the board governance training I participated in, and some others in the room have done that as well. Over the years, I, I repeatedly heard a phrase, I recalled as I was studying this passage, and it'll be clear why in a moment. But basically, this, this, uh, this governance principle for, for boards, and in a special way for boards of, uh, governing boards of like nonprofit organizations, this statement said this, the justification for any organization lies in what good it will do for whom, and at what cost. The justification for any organization lies in what good it will do, for whom, and at what cost. Now that, that is a wonderfully clarifying question for organizations, uh, again, especially those who govern. What, what good is it we propose to do, for whom, and at what cost? But I, what, what dawned on me is that it really is kind of a clarifying statement for understanding the saving work of God uh, from a certain perspective as well. That, in other words, what, what we need to understand, at least at the most basic level, is what good did he do, for whom, and at what cost? He actually speaks to all of those in a real brief way right here in this passage. What good did he do? Well, he ransomed you from captivity a fact which we visited a couple of weeks ago. We talked about the nature of salvation, that part of what we were saved from is captivity to the, to the enemy and to our sin. And he's really, again, sort of drawn from that. Uh, again, we, he, he ransomed you from the futile ways of your forefathers. You were captive to sin and didn't even know it. And he bought you and me out of slavery. For whom? That's the good that he did. For whom? Well, for you. <laughs> for those who trust in, in Jesus. It says in verse 21, he's speaking about those that, that through him you are believers in God. Those who trust in Christ are those for whom God did this uh, indescribably good work. And at what cost? How much was God willing to pay to ransom you out of the mess you got yourself into? I'm talking about you because it feels better than talking about me. <laughs> I, could, I could say I, but you, how, what 
what cost, what price was God willing to pay? He paid with the precious blood of Christ, it said here. Gave the life of his only begotten son in order to purchase freedom for hostile enemies and to make them adopted sons and daughters. That's a repeat of what I said a couple of weeks ago, but it's absolutely astounding, isn't it? He paid the price of the life of his only begotten son in order to purchase adopted sons and daughters. From, uh, uh, you know, from among whom, all of whom were, not just innocent bystanders, but hostile enemies. The cost was incalculable. And again, the thought occurred to me as I was, as I was planning this and, and connecting it to the whole idea of uh, sort of the, the justification of any organization and, and nonprofit organizations and so forth. Try to imagine the scenario where in heaven, anybody but God himself came up with this plan. I mean, imagine the scenario where some angels got together and say, hey, uh, we, we've got a proposal we want to start this new humanitarian work. We're trying to raise money for startup for it. You know, get some supporters and volunteers and so forth. Okay, yeah, what's your pitch? Well, we want to, we want to save all those, you know, traitors, or not all of them, but, you know, some of them. All those traitors down there, turncoats, enemies, the ones who were in perfect favor and relationship with God initially and turned on. Yeah, we want to we save them. Okay, well, um, you know, what's it, how much is it going to cost? Do you have any idea what the ransom payment is for somebody in their situation? Well, I don't, I don't know. We thought maybe... Maybe the Son of God could go just give his own life. I mean, you see, the, there's, there's no way anybody but God himself could agree to that plan or pay for it. But that's the price that was required. That God himself would take on human a form enter the calamity of humans and though live his whole life without sin by his death would pay for their sin. The cost is incalculable. To say, the high, say it was the highest price, I put that on this slide partly because that fit on one line better than all the things that I wanted to try to say to describe because it's, it's, it's immeasurable, it's incalculable, it's inestimable. The price that he paid for your ransom. You may have heard that uh, Bonhoeffer quote before or at least, I don't know if it's a quote per se, but sort of the sentiment that grace is free but it isn't cheap. 
Grace is free, but it is not cheap. It cost God the life of his only son. And for you and I to claim to be recipients of his grace and live as if that grace was cheap and not costly to the highest degree imaginable and more. To live as if his grace is cheap is to hold him in contempt. And you see, it just, it, it just is, is inconceivable that one who, who really has received the grace of God, who really has been redeemed for his glory, who really has been created for good works that we might proclaim his excellencies, the one who really gets that, even in some measure, can't possibly live as if his grace is cheap. His grace was costly. And so, he says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And it does seem quite clear, as much as we wrestle with understanding that, it does seem quite clear of all the things we know, even all the things he's just said right here. For him to pay that kind of price means there is a love that is also incalculable, a love for us. He can't possibly be indifferent about our, uh, our, our problems, nor can he be one who just wants to terrorize us. There's, there's, there's no way to uh, conceive of this as being a fear we ought to have of him that would, that would create distance from him or make us feel terror of him or anything like that. But a great reverence and awe that is just thrilling. He is so great, he is so mighty, and he is so wonderful that we just stand in awe of him. I come back to the verses I read in the call to worship where he says, let all the earth fear the Lord and all the inhabitants of the world Stand in awe of him, for he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood fast. Every molecule in creation stands fast at his command. But it goes on to say, Behold, the eye of the Lord, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. His fear and his love are completely harmonious with each other, completely compatible. And for us to return love and fear for his love and his majesty uh, is completely compatible with the life that we're called to. If we call him Father, we ought to live a life walking in a great awe and reverence and fear of the one who judges unpartially and paid an inestimable price for us to belong to him. Let's pray together. Well, God, we do just stand in awe of you. We acknowledge 
we are all too often casual and familiar to an excessive degree that we err on the side of love and grace and and your acceptance and construe that to mean that you just don't really care how we live our lives. Lord, I pray that you would reorient our hearts to live in awe and reverence, indeed in fear of you, in a way that befits how great you are and how good it is that you've shown your grace and set your love upon us. Help us make sense of that in our own hearts, that our whole lives might be worshipped to you and might testify to your greatness and goodness. Lord, I pray that leaving this time today, you would make sense by your Spirit of things that I've not made sense of for your glory, for the good of your people. In Jesus' name, amen.